0: we're focused on stopping a behavior that isn't what trauma-informed care is supposed to be trauma-informed care is supposed to be about let's look at why this behavior is happening
1: i can't tell you how many parents come to me thinking they're screwing something up and worry that that means they're inevitably going to screw up their child too But when we truly understand attachment theory, we realize that the goal of parenting is not to be perfect. And that can take a huge amount of weight off of our shoulders, and it opens us up to the freedom of believing, I do not need to be perfect to be everything my child needs. Joining me today is Robin Goebel. Robin is a therapist, trainer, and consultant who has over 15 years of experience in family and child therapy. She specializes in complex trauma, attachment, and adoption. And she's the host of the podcast, Parenting After Trauma with Robin Goebel, where she teaches people how to harness the power of neuroscience so they can cultivate deep, resonant connections. Understanding your child's basic needs to be safe, seen, soothed, and secure gives you access to a cheat sheet of sorts. When we look past their behaviors to the underlying cause of why they are behaving in a particular way, we could start to treat the root cause of the problem and make real and lasting change. I really enjoyed speaking with Robin and I hope you enjoy our conversation too. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy-to-understand and actionable parenting insights so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hi, I'm... So excited to welcome to the podcast, Robin Goebbels. She is a licensed psychotherapist and she supports families and professionals through all sorts of ways of speaking and community engagement and, you know, trainings. And she is like a wealth of resource, um, on trauma informed parenting. And I'm just really so grateful for you to come on the show and talk to us a little bit about trauma and attachment and parenting and all the the hard stuff that we (laughs) we really have to talk about.
0: Yes, yeah, so, well, uh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And I I'm just I can't wait to see where this goes. Yeah, me
1: too. That's the best thing about these conversations is like you never know, I know. where it's going to go. <laughs> <I know. laughs> but, well, so let's, let's start at the beginning then. So like, how did you get into this work? Tell us a little bit about, you know, how you found yourself here.
0: Yeah, I was... I've been doing this kind of work since I've been working, essentially, and been one of those people that always wanted to work with kids. I've always been super interested in attachment. Like in graduate school, I did all of my papers on attachment, you know, and I really knew nothing about it, but it was reading books and writing papers. And so <laughs> always have just had this like draw towards attachment. Some of that was like the times, like I was getting my professional degree when. Attachment was getting a lot more airtime. There was, you know, reactive attachment disorder was being talked about. We were talking about holding therapy, traumas, and tragedies were happening. So I was curious about it and launched into the professional world again, only ever wanting to work with kids. Um, All of my Training's always been about attachment, trauma. And then I also discovered this um, kind of unique niche of I work with a ton of adoptive families. That's the majority of the families that I work with actually happen to be adoptive families. Um, and so my I've been a therapist for 15 years. And that's really just been all I've ever done is mm-hmm. work with families who are looking for support specifically around... Um, increasing safety and attachment inside their uh, family family experience. And then probably about, I don't know, six, seven years ago, it, I realized that the work that I was so fortunate to do in the office and the trainings and the professional mentors I was so lucky to have weren't uh, widely available and i wanted to really make an impact in that like making sure more families more therapists more professionals could could really sink their hands into attachment and by that time i found relational neuroscience and all that all that really good stuff and so i started speaking and teaching and training and blogging and um i've had the really good fortune in the past couple years to transition to doing that kind of work exclusively teaching and training Mm -hmm. and Per, um, program development and all that, all that kind of stuff, just, just to get this out to even more families and more therapists. So families have more therapists that they can turn to. That's so amazing.
1: I mean, I, I feel like that is sort of my motivation too, is like, I feel like I have these secret pieces of information that are not secret and exactly. I and them. And right. it's like, why it's like, I'm reading them in a book as I'm going through graduate school. Yes. And I'm like, this makes so much sense. And then I'm watching it play out in real time with all of my patients who I got my start really working with adults with trauma, looking at, I worked with adults with sort of really chronic and pervasive childhood attachment based traumas, um, working with, um, I ran the DBT, a DBT program Mm -hmm. at a hospital Mm -hmm. in the city for a while, like, and I was working kind of with these adults whose childhoods looked really unstable, insecure, chaotic, lots of misattunement and we were kind of reverse engineering that
0: system
1: and creating more safety, more security. And I, and then when I became a parent, I was like, Oh, Oh. this light bulb moment. I was like, Oh my God, like this is what parents need to know to be able to create the secure attachment with their kids to help create relationships that are based on safety and attunement. And like you mentioned, neurobiology and relational neuro, you know, being able to understand your child's nervous system and how to communicate safety to their nervous system with your body and your affect. Yes. Because no one is talking about this. Like at least and not enough. Like not enough. I feel like we live in like echo chambers where we're like everyone's talking about this in our worlds. But then I like dip out of that echo chamber for a minute and I'm like, oh wait, no. No, A lot of people have no idea about this. And it's like how do we get more people to
0: know about this? Because it's pretty important stuff. I agree, it's become like the best kept secret. And I think actually there's a lot of ways we do that in the mental health community is we mm-hmm. keep our hands on things really tightly yeah. That it's not that's not serving us in the long run, that no. we can get creative and look for ways to make some of the things we've been so fortunate to know and embody and practice because of all of our privileges and see if there's ways that we can get them, make them more accessible to people who don't have access to something like even like, you know, regular outpatient therapy. So, yeah. Yes. And especially now
1: where it's like, you can't get a therapist if you want one. Like it's really hard to get therapy right now. And so we have to find other ways to get this information to families. Yes. Although, get a therapist. <laughs> Definitely still yeah. get a therapist.
0: <laughs> I absolutely am obviously a big fan of therapy. My life has been changed by therapy. I've watched people's lives be changed by therapy. And I also realized, like, I I did my entire professional career up until two years ago in Austin, Texas, which is, like, the therapy mecca of the Western Hemisphere. Uh-huh. Like, there's more. Everyone has a therapist. There's, like, more therapists than Starbucks, right? When there's Starbucks, you know, it's like every, there's a, everybody does therapy in Austin, Texas, and it was still inaccessible to the, you know, and then I leave Austin um, and kind of go out into, you know, the real world, not this little Austin bubble. And it's like, oh yeah, like therapy's not accessible in the best of times. And certainly that's gotten um, just more pronounced in the last 18, 20 months because of the pandemic. Right. Because the demand yeah. for it has just exploded
1: yeah. because everyone's
0: in a collective yeah. crisis. Yes. And the therapists are too. Yeah, And so therapists are struggling. Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: So this feels like, a, I mean, the very good segue to talk about trauma, because yeah. we're all kind of feeling that right now um, in in a, in a very unusual, unprecedented way where it's like, I don't know, this is a total tangent, but I don't know if you, we are not practicing individual work, but I've never in my, I've noticed a big shift in the way I do therapy, even in the pandemic, because a lot of times, unless I'm doing parenting work, and I I do more self-disclosure when I'm doing parenting work, because I'm a parent, and I can relate, and it feels important to share that reality, yeah. But, you know, if you've ever been in therapy, you probably have noticed that your therapist doesn't share that much about their experience. And that's, there's a reason for that. And there's a, there's a function to that. But also, you know, I don't live the same experience as most exactly. of my patients, right? Like yeah. I don't have, right. but, but since the pandemic... It's different because we're all in it together. We're all going through this together. And I noticed that I actually do a lot more self-disclosure about how I'm coping with the pandemic because, hi, we're two human beings sitting in a room or now in this case, sitting on a computer screen together, but we are living the same experience. And I think it is important that we talk about that shared human experience. And the pandemic has been... trauma in a lot of different ways for different people. And I don't presume to say that everyone is experiencing it as traumatic or that, you know, it's, but, and it's also, that's not the only thing that can be traumatizing. Like we, we, yes, we might be in a collective trauma as a society, but that doesn't mean other, other traumas aren't. Happening or right. have had happened that are impacting the way that we parent. So, right. can we talk a little bit about like trauma informed parenting and like what 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 is that?
0: Yes, I'd love to talk about trauma informed parenting because I have feelings about what that is, and <laughs> even just calling it that. Um, and then also, yes, looking at just exactly like you're saying, like we're in this kind of collective experience as a nation and as a as a globe. And how do we balance that collective experience while also acknowledging that for some folks, the trauma of the past 20 months has been, you know, wildly different than than for other other folks, right? Um, So what is trauma-informed parenting? So for, I've actually... going to go on a little bit of a tangent there because I've stopped using when I can a lot of language like trauma informed mm-hmm. because what I have experienced, especially in teaching and training um, and being with, especially with large groups of people is tr- like tr- being trauma informed. So important. So, so, so important. And there's been this way that it's been shifted into just the next behavior management tool like if oh, i get man. xyz you know intervention and it's trauma informed there's still this hope underneath it for so many people that this new intervention that's quote unquote trauma informed is finally going to quote unquote work and it's going to stop this behavior and that's not trauma informed right that's like right? when we're focused on stopping a behavior that's not that isn't what trauma-informed care is supposed to be trauma-informed care is supposed to be about let's look at why this behavior is happening but then i was getting all these questions too i teach and i teach in front of you know in front of educators and professionals and without a doubt someone would raise their hand and say well like but what about the what about the kids in my classroom or the kids in my you know caseload who haven't had trauma what about the kids in my house that haven't had trauma? What do we do about them? And then I was realizing, oh, again, like we're kind of using this as a behavior management tool that's mm-hmm. reserved for people who have had trauma, as opposed to looking at this bitter picture that's like he, what we have learned from the trauma-informed community, what we've been kind of forced to get clear about is that behavior is a, like a manifestation of our inner experience right? Like what's happening in our inner world, what's happening in our autonomic nervous system, our past experiences, our now experience, all that comes together. And one of the things that happens as a result of that is some sort of observable behavior. Mm-hmm. And that's true about all of us. Yes.
1: That's true oh, about yeah, like, every single one of us. Uh huh. I talk about this all the yeah. time when like our kids are having tantrums. Mm-hmm. which is not a trauma response, right? You know, like we're not, your child's not traumatized because they're having a tantrum. That's a developmentally appropriate behavior for a right. small child when they've hit their maximum, right? Affectively right. regulatory. They're just, they're done. Right. They're exploding. Right. The, whatever they're doing while they are emoting in this way is the, is the behavior Right, and that's not the thing to focus on. Actually, you can get really right. distracted focusing on that. But you need right. to understand why is this behavior happening? What's going on in their body? What experiences yes. have they had building up to this trauma? Like yes. trauma, this yeah, yeah, tantrum. Yeah. Yes, but it all feels similar, and I think that's why. Yes. you're right. I think it's brilliant that you are making this distinction. That you basically this idea of like trauma informed parenting. And I guess I kind of use it, use that phrase, mm-hmm. because i I'm actually not talking about trauma. I'm talking about because I don't think trauma-informed parenting has to be done for people who have experienced trauma. It's more like I didn't have a better language for describing the wealth yeah. of going under the behavior. Yeah. because that's rude. That's trauma. And like in the trauma-informed world, It's all about going beneath the surface and understanding what's under there.
0: Yes. Yes. 100% yes. And then what I was finding was because people were continuing to like silo these two things apart, like, well, like when I talk to educators, these students have had trauma and these ones haven't. And so these, you know, these apply to those students, but these other students are still going to get you know, behavior charts in the stoplight system or whatever, whatever we want to say. Right. And so Mm -hmm. that, again, that just made me get so curious, like what's the disconnect here? Like where, what's hard for people to see that, no, this actually applies to all kids and all humans. Mm -hmm. And then the more I dug, the more I dug, the more I dug, I was like, oh, because we're actually still using this as a behavior management technique. Like we're just, we're using new tools, see beneath the behavior as a new tool still though with the motivation to stop the behavior yeah, as opposed to using the tools to help people feel better and be responsive and respectful of their like autonomic state in the moment, knowing that better behavior would emerge from that. And I feel like when you put it that way, then it's like, well, obviously that applies to everyone. And yeah. I say that with the deepest... Respect and humility towards folks who have experienced horrifying trauma, right? Like, I'm not attempting to minimize that in any way, shape, or form. But what I think has happened is that we, because we accidentally turned trauma informed care into a behavior management technique, is I actually think that does a disservice to folks who have really experienced, you know, really severe trauma. And if we can, understand that seeing below the behavior and understanding and supporting and connecting with the autonomic nervous system, that's not about being trauma informed. That's just about like the neurobiology of being human. Yes. Then we can look at how trauma impacts and influences that. Yeah. Which it absolutely does significantly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It does. And I think that's why people who, and it's like ambiguous trauma, like, yeah, you know, that like, things like a pandemic where it's like I have so many people in my practice who are like it's you know almost two years in and they've forgotten they've forgotten that there's a pandemic and they'll come and be like this is going on and I keep doing this and I can't figure out why I'm doing this and I'm having these really and I'm like well let's understand it don't forget right put remember like zoom out and remember we're in a (laughs) pandemic like we're all kind of having this low-level cortisol and adrenaline drip into our bodies every day like it's accumulative and it's right it's but it's ambiguous you can't quite put your finger on it you forget that it's there it's so it's hard to notice when it's informing or affecting how you're showing up with maybe your kids or your spouse or yourself like your
0: inner dialogue well and then because also because another thing that like sympathetic arousal does by design is it pauses our ability to be self-reflective uh-huh. right that that's being in sympathetic arousal and, and, and fight flight specifically in sympathetic arousal it's not safe to spend a lot of time pondering your own inner experience like we don't have time for that right. so a byproduct of being in kind of low-grade chronic you know, lack of safety that's happening Mm -hmm. in our um, world right now is that we do start to lose some self-awareness, some self-reflection, some awareness of like, oh yeah, everybody's really stressed out. It just starts to feel it's our normal because yes, it's our every moment, but it's also, we've also stopped being as like aware of the bigger picture because that is the, that's what happens. When right. you're in it's chronic adaptive. sympathetic arousal, exactly, it's completely adaptive. Yes,
1: right. When you're in a dangerous situation, yeah, it's not adaptive to be pausing to smell the roses. No, nope. it's not safe. You're gonna get eaten by a tiger or something. Like right. you have to be paying. You have to be a little bit more focused on survival. Um yes. and yes. your base needs. So. Yes. And I, you know, it, I think that that is happening now for people because we've been in this for so long, we've forgotten to notice that yeah. we're feeling so stressed. But like, what can we do? Like, okay, I, we're we're remembering now, you and me in this conversation, that we're in a pandemic, that we're we're probably in low level fight or flight. Mm-hmm. We're reflecting actually now because we're feeling safe enough to do that, right? And we've noticed it. So now what do we do? Like, how can we chill that out a little bit and like come back to center?
0: Yes. Well, even just being with you in this moment and watching you go through that little process you just went through and about noticing, and then you took a breath and you put your hands on your chest and you went, right. And so then there's another moment to notice that, like, oh yeah, like giving some language to it like acknowledging the lack of safety is a way we bring safety because it's a way we bring congruence. It's a way we bring the sense of being seen, right? Even if the being seen as I'm being seen as something that's kind of hard, it's still being seen. That's a moment of like safety and rest in our system and to look for opportunities for not only for that to happen, um, but then also to be reflective and noticing that it happened, like, okay, wow, that felt, that felt good. Mm-hmm. And then maybe a moment of like, well, I'm not getting, I'm not getting enough of that. Mm-hmm. How could I get more, you know, where are places in my life where I could infuse little tiny doses of that Yeah, more often? Yeah. It's funny. Yeah.
1: Cause I think, you know, we're all in our computer's We're all doing things that maybe kind of distract us out of our bodies. And I've actually been telling a lot of my patients to set a timer for every two hours. Mm -hmm. Just every two hours, take a breath, like stop, just shake it out and take a breath and regulate that nervous system a little bit. And even for our kids, like this was more when like kids were on like Zoom school all day long. And I was telling (sighs) parents like, go in if you're home or have whoever's home with your kid, Set a timer and every two hours have them take a brain break and and get back in their bodies for just a minute, right? Like it doesn't have to be a whole disruptive thing for their day. But like we have to regulate our nervous system just like we have to like eat food and, you know, drink water.
0: Absolutely. Well, and even the language you just used is so indicative of kind of our cultural beliefs about this is that it it couldn't possibly be disruptive to go in and help our kids get reconnected to our bodies. It's the Mm -hmm. opposite of disruptive, Right. right? Like the more we support, like connecting to ourselves and being aware of moments of safety, the less disruptive we're all going to be, yeah. the more successful our kids are going to be at doing this completely bizarre thing, which just staring mm-hmm. at a computer screen all day long at a 2D picture in front of them, which is hard right. for the best of us. But for five-year-olds, it's pretty it's unbelievable. Frying. Yes. It's frying.
1: It's really, yes. It's, And I think there are kids that are still doing it right now. Like school just started and some of it's virtual still i think that a lot of places are back in person but it was well, last year was a weird year
0: and we yeah. did things
1: as a species that we have just never done before
0: that's right and then we forgot how remarkable it was that we just survived
1: yeah. right
0: and i'm not talking about surviving from covid which is also remarkable mm-hmm. but the fact that we're still like in any semblance at all of getting through life in a way, it's so remarkable. And if we could even pause and notice that like, yay me, like yay, yay that, yay that it's okay. That I didn't organize my basement or write a book or go on a diet or learn a new language. Like all these things people are like, you know, it's like, no, I just am here still. And That's really remarkable. Yes. I remember I think I was listening to NPR
1: at one point in the on my like driving around during COVID, like when it first was like like a year in, and someone was saying, like, it's not an artist's retreat. It's a pandemic. Yes. Like right. give yourself a break. Like <laughs> and I was like, Thank you. I needed to hear that. Like yeah. this wasn't about oh, I've been given the gift of time and productivity. It's like, no, we've been yeah really just cobbling things together to try to make it work, which is totally okay and adaptive. And like thinking about adaptation, I'm wondering if it might be helpful too, to talk about like the role of adaptation in our neurobiology and in our attachment styles and in the way that we show up in the world, like how, because I think a lot, I get a lot of questions from parents that are like, you know, I'm, I'm I'm screwing this up. Like if I'm yeah. one wrong move and this attachment relationship is going to be totally destroyed. And, or, or I'm, I have an insecure attachment style. And so I'm not going to be able to have a secure attachment style with my kid. And I think, I think there's a lot of, I don't know, confusion around attachment. Yeah. There's a
0: ton of confusion. I mean, this in a way kind of brings me back to the beginning of our conversation. was like, we're, I think in the mental health field, we hold a little bit too closely to our what we know and we Mm -hmm. like dribble it out to the like public and Mm -hmm. then like come back to like holding it too tight and then we end up with kind of this mess I feel like we have right now with a large misunderstanding about attachment in kind of the general population to the point where this profoundly important research on kids and the humanity really of children has unintentionally been shifted into this new way parents can just like self-flagellate themselves, Uh but as if we need more of that, right? And, you know, we look at some really basic statistics and attachment. They're like, yes, we know that our, in general, 80% of the time, children like mirror the same kind of way of being with regards to attachment as their primary caregiver. Okay. Mm -hmm. We know that that's true. We know that's remarkable. That's not, we know that's like way outside, like statistical probability. And then we turn, we go next to, oh no, because i'm screwed up i'm inevitably going to screw up my kid yes and i think some of that is the nature of in- insecure attachment has flavors of shame just embedded into the neurobiology of it mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so when we kind of awaken some of our streams of attachment and especially our like like our streams of insecure attachment it makes a lot of sense for a feeling of shame to kind of come up with that. But then in addition to that, it's our cultural way of, um, you know, putting so much burden on parents to be perfect and raise quote unquote perfect kids. Yes which I have no idea what that even is, but I know no, I'm not doing it.
1: Me neither. <laughs> but, I, but my journey has been to be very accepting of that. And I think yes. that's one of the things that I'm trying to help other parents do too, is like, yeah. that's not my goal. And exactly. it need to be yours either. And giving myself permission to show up as a good enough parent, which really is right. the goal. Right. We're going to, you know, And we know that, like,
0: the science, exactly. I was like, the science tells us that, which is why I'm, like, kind of geek out on the science. I really Mm -hmm. like the science to give me permission to be imperfect, I still really need, it still feels hard for me to just be imperfect. But if the science says it's okay, then it's okay. But the science really does tell us that like, we just need to be quote unquote good enough and really smart researchers who are doing different kinds of work than I do have been able to decide what good enough even means. And that the most important part really in a in like moving towards or developing secure attachment or, I like to say actually more like giving our kids experiences of secure attachment. I'm much more, I am much more interested in like the nuanced moments than I am in looking at these like broad sweeping, my kid has secure attachment, my kid has insecure attachment.
1: Right. And um, I actually, but I think that's also one of the misunderstandings of attachment in general is yes. that attachment doesn't refer to the person. Att- right. the security of one's not attachment yeah. is not you i am a i am securely attached it's actually it refers to the quality of the relationships within each relationship and then you look at the patterns across those relationships and that's where you get yes. an attachment pattern or an attachment sometimes people call attachment style but it's not right. who you are it's not fixed and it changes from relationship to relationship so you might have had an insecure attachment relationship with your mother. Yes. That doesn't mean you cannot have a secure attachment relationship with your child. It might take some conscious effort on your part to pay attention to shifting patterns. And yes. that's a hard thing to do, but it certainly is doable. I mean, our literally uh, this what we do for a living is help people change patterns. Right. <laughs> like understanding how they got there in the first place and finding ways to do it differently. But- So you can definitely change it. So you you're not like doomed to repeat the same thing. It's not Groundhog's Day. Like you have (laughs) agency.
0: It's definitely not Groundhog's Day. But also, even before I think we get to, we can do something about this. Which actually, we absolutely can. Like we are in the business of hope, right? (laughs) But. I mean, otherwise, we would, seriously like. Why would we even do what we do? Like, we are in the business of hope. But even before we get to, we can change. There's something so challenging about even wanting change because implicit in wanting change, oftentimes, is something's bad. Yes, and uh, so yeah. this huge place for me with attachment and understanding attachment and like really working in truly an attachment informed way is there's nothing wrong with any of it. And I remember when I like was early in my career, like people were using the words and people still use the words, like it's certain behaviors are maladaptive, certain behaviors are maladaptive. And I remember me, I remember liking that word at first, like thinking Mm -hmm. like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like we use the word maladaptive and what we understand in that is this behavior used to be adaptive and that's very honoring. That's very strength space. It really helps us understand where this behavior come from. And now it's maladaptive. It's like, well, except for not really, because in every unfolding moment, humans only do things that they think that their nervous system believes is in the best entrance of them staying alive. And so even if we could objectively look at a situation and go like, well, that's maladaptive in that moment, that person's nervous system believed it was adaptive. It believes it's doing the very best thing that it can based on what's available to them in that moment and what all of their previous experiences were. And so these behaviors that we often associate with insecure attachment, people end up feeling a lot of shame around and I have to change this. And it's like like the horror of passing on insecure attachment to your child, right? And it's like, well, right. let's just pause for a moment <laughs> and notice that your own patterns of insecurity with regards to relationship emerged from like this brilliant place in your nervous system that figured out how to do what it needed to do to be okay in that moment. It figured out like all of us want to be safe, seen, soothed, and secure, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. Siegel and Bryson's kind of a safe, secure attachment language, safe, seen, soothed, and secure. If we're not getting that enough, we figure out ways to get that as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And those behavior patterns ultimately get labeled things like insecure Anxious attachment,
1: insecure avoidant attachment. Right. right. Because, and I, I feel like we should just go into what insecure, anxious, and insecure avoidant, why those are adaptive. Like, what does that look? Because people don't know, I think, what these terms really mean and what they actually look like. And yes. I think if they do, they think that's bad. And so yes. really quick, like, so let's talk, we'll do anxious avoidant, or let's do anxious and then we'll talk about avoidant. But anxious is basically like, I don't trust. That you are going to reliably meet my needs. You sometimes do, you sometimes don't. I get enough that I think it's like I I wanna lead in, but mm-hmm. I'm scared to lean in. So I do this kind of waffling, this mm-hmm. ambivalence. I want you, but I don't know that I trust you totally. So that's that's the anxious attachment style. You see it when the, you know, the strange situation, the little, the kid, the mom leaves the mom right. comes back, the child goes to the mom, but they, uh, they're they not sure right. how much they want to be near that mom in that moment. They might be right. angry, right? Right. The avoidant attachment style or dismissive attachment style is I sort of consistently hadn't gotten needs met. I know that I'm gonna be disappointed and to shield myself from that feeling of disappointment of an unmet need, I turn off from that. I shut down the feelings, I shut down the needs, I don't really go there. So I'm kind of a little bit turned down. Yes. And so, and people will look at that and they'll say, those are bad, those are maladaptive, that's a problem.
0: Can you talk to us about why those are adaptive behaviors? Yeah. Yes, I absolutely can, and I also will refer um, folks to this like free free ebook that I have because that's what the entire ebook is about. Like, yes. how do we reframe these experiences as exactly that they're adaptive? So, in the anxious attachment pattern, again, like the well, first we want to remember that the parent, the caregiver is also doing the very best that they can, Mm -hmm. right? The caregiver is because of their own history, their own experiences in attachment and their own neurobiology related to attachment are, are showing up for their baby in the best way they know how. Yes, It's just that because of their own history, it makes it very hard. So for example, in the anxious attachment relationship for that caregiver to show up really confidently as, them, as like this embodied, um, secure individual who can see their child's dysregulation and just go, oh, my, my, my sweet baby's dysregulated and I know how to help them. And so because of their, because that's a struggle for them, the adult stays in a more dysregulated state themselves. Right. And kind of in a way merges with the baby's dysregulation, like the energy like gets all jumbly. And then the baby is like, and not consciously because babies aren't having these kind of conscious thoughts, but we're so brilliant. We figure this out anyway. Mm -hmm. The baby's like, wait a minute. Um, my distress is really, you know, it's just stressful for my caregiver, which ultimately is leaving me not really exactly getting my needs met, which is, I just want to be safe, seen, suited, and secure. So what is the best thing I can do to get my parent to be as present as possible? And sometimes that's to be um, kind of discontent because discontentment often does bring parent presence, Mm -hmm. Even if it's discontent themselves, at least the parent's present and that's something that feels kind of stable and predictable to the child and kids like predictability, right? Or maybe that's actually like over perfectionistic, like I'm going to be the best baby and the best kid in the whole wide world. And it's like this really anxiously driven frenetic, like I'm perfect, I'm perfect, I'm perfect because that helps my parents Mm -hmm. be really present and really see me. And that's ultimately Ultimately, all I want is to be seen and safe and suits and secure. And I will do anything to get that as much as possible. Right. Right. And, and again, always holding in mind that the parents are doing the very best that they can based yeah. on their own neurobiology and yeah. what happens for them when their baby has a need.
1: And you can right? follow it back and back and back. Like it's, exactly. In, really it's like, like a inter- house of generational years. transmission yeah. of trauma. So there's yes. that trauma word again, even though we're not talking about what people might think of as like, a big, bad, scary thing happened to me, these sort of chronic misattunements, these chronic mismatches in affective states, in needs being met or unmet. That's how we pass this on. So, you know, it it just keeps going down the generational lines because we're always shown every parent wants, I mean, given the most rare, rare exceptions. Exactly. Every parent is trying the absolute best to do for their kid, what they can, if they can't. And again, so it's like, it gets kind of murky in this conversation. Cause it's like, are we talking about the kid or the parent? I guess we're talking right. about both simultaneously at the same time. We're also talking about that parent's parent. Like it's all happening yes. kind of like, these,
0: yes. Well, because they're there, right? Like, as mm-hmm. I'm parenting my son, my experience being parented is present. Yes, and then very because I was parented, but their experience of being parented was present. So yeah, it does yes. get like real house. It gets feeling. It's, it's like, like there's ah!
1: this. I think it's wrote this article called "Ghosts in the Nursery," and it yeah. talks all about this. That's, yeah. Yes. Maybe we could post that in the show notes. Yeah, it's kind of a yeah. psycho. It's very dense, but it's a really yes. good explanation of this. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then in the avoidant one, it's that, you know, it is to be, to have a need to express like help. I need help. Please help me. is very, very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And if that need isn't seen, isn't recognized, isn't co-regulated a lot, because again, the parents own inner, like their own neurobiology with regards to vulnerability, um, being really present, like they've had their own experiences that makes that very, very challenging for them to even really resonate with their child enough to know that a need is present. And so then the child has enough experiences of like, oh, I have this need and that's really vulnerable, but I'm kind of repeatedly not getting soothed, I'm not getting seen. And that is so painful. Mm -hmm. That my, not only is it so painful, but it's also stressing my parents out and making them even more unavailable. Mm -hmm. And so a way I adapt to how painful my inner world is and to wanting to do whatever I can to have my parent be as present as possible is I, I kind of turn off those needs. Like I turn the volume down on them to, you know, for so often when I'm working with these kids in the office or when I'm working with adults, it's like, they don't even notice that they have sensations happening in their body mm-hmm. because they've just turned off any information that's coming up yes. into their awareness. Yeah. So that's brilliant, right? Like mm-hmm. what a way to avoid kind of languishing in loneliness and, and despair and in being uncomfortable is to be like, just not notice it anymore so 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 brilliant it's it was needed yes um
1: yeah and i'm i'm actually like i'm realizing as we talk about this i'm like i bet you so many parents are sitting here because this is what we're wired to do thinking about what we're talking about hearing the child that we're talking about in these examples as their kid and thinking oh my god oh i'm messing up this is this is terrible if you are thinking that right now, I want you to go rewind to the beginning of this piece of the yes. conversation and listen to it again. Yeah. And when you're thinking about the child that we're talking about, don't think about your child, think about you. Yeah. Because yeah. this is human experience. Right. right. And it's not this is this is okay that this happens. If and if you understand how you, as a human being, and when you are a yeah. child, were adaptive and figured out how to use your own body and neurobiology and behavior and affect to get your parents to come closer to you, to see you. Yes. That's going to help you understand your child so that you can be as attuned to them as possible and understand how to be there for them in a regulated way that will help them be the four S's. Yes. What are they? Yeah. Yes. Safe, safe, secure. Yes.
0: Yeah. I love, I love that prompting like exactly. Like, um, And because whenever, again, you know, we sit in attachment trainings, right. I'm teaching them or I'm sitting in them and it's like impossible not to do two things. Remember yourself as a kid. And then think about how you're screwing up your own kids, right. (laughs) Right. If you're a parent. And so I usually talk about that at the beginning of kind of attachment trainings, like just know this is going to happen. Lots of compassion for ourselves. Um, but to go and, and to, to try to stay anchored in this as more like you as the child mm-hmm. and staying in that from a really big place of compassion, be- that helps us stay connected to like, okay, so now I'm an adult and I have these like relationship adaptations mm-hmm. that are, make so much sense, make so much sense. And can I stay in a place of compassion about that? Because the only way we have any sort of shifting in our inner world is if we're in a state of compassion. Mm -hmm. And so if we want things to shift and, and, and it's okay to, for both to be true, it's okay to now be an adult and say, you know what? When I was a kid, I did the very best that I could. And, um, some things were missing for me. And I, and because of that, I have some, some pain, and so I'm doing the absolute best that I can, and I'm doing a pretty darn good job. And I have some parts of myself that really deserve to get their needs met now. Mm-hmm. Right? And so can I, can both be true? Can I look at my behaviors of insecure attachment? I mean, I can just say my own, right? Like when my son, I have a 15 year old when he was little, what, this is not an uncommon parenting thing, but like nighttime parenting, dysregulated parenting, I need, I need, I need, I need parenting for me was so hard. It was so hard. I would get the sense of like, this is never going to end. He's going <laughs> to cry for the rest of our lives. I'm never going to be okay. Okay. You know, like, those are kind of classic thoughts of anxious attachment, these feelings of like, it will never end, it will never be enough, mm-hmm. right? And for me to be able to, uh, thankfully, have enough resource in my own life between like my professional development and my professional <laughs> colleagues and my spouse and, you know, living a relatively privileged life allowed me to notice like, Oh, that my overwhelm at these needs that I have the sense of, I will never meet them and you will always have a need and I'll never meet your need. And therefore I feel inadequate and snowball, snowball, snowball. Like that comes from a a place in me that really deserves lots of compassion and lots of presence and lots of holding and not shame. If I, spend all this time shaming those parts of myself, they're still not getting what they need. No, And you know what? Neither is my kid then.
1: Right? No. Everyone's losing and they'll just get
0: louder. Yes. Yes. So having the guts really takes a lot of guts. And it does take a lot of, I think, privilege and resource to Mm -hmm. pause and say, you know what? That is a part of me that I would like to shift in a way, because my kid deserves something different. And the, the, that hurting part inside of me deserves something different. Mm-hmm. That can be true while also it being true that I am doing the very best that I can. And my nervous system is reacting exactly the way that it thinks to, it needs to in those moments. Can yeah. both be true. Right.
1: And I think in accepting that both can be true, we can start to rewire yes the brain and the nervous system yes cuz i think that's the next step and and an important one and i think having those experiences in, in the moment while also saying i am safe my kid yes. is safe this is a this makes sense yeah that physiological calming response paired with this experience is rewiring yeah do it enough and you have a new neural circuit in your brain yeah
0: yep yeah. Absolutely. And my kid doesn't need me to be perfect. My kid doesn't need me to be perfect. If possible, my kid needs a parent who's capable of noticing when things go awry and then making a repair. I mean, when it comes right Mm -hmm. down to it, that's basically the definition of secure attachment, right? Like, I have enough awareness to notice that we've gone astray. And then can I make the repair? But Mm -hmm. also, there's probably a lot of parents listening. I know I've worked with a lot of parents that are like, I don't do that very good. Like yeah. I don't make that repair very well, and so my thought to that is like, okay, well, let's just notice that. Let's just notice that there's enough pain in your own history that it makes that kind that level of vulnerability really hard. Yeah. How do we get you what you need so that you could begin to be with yourself in a new way and your kid in a new way too?
1: Yeah. And that's funny because I I was just talking about this the other day, but um, repair actually starts with you forgiving yourself and then talking to your child about it. Because if you just have the – otherwise what happens is we end up having these sort of like rote stock phrases for Mm -hmm. repair that feel really Mm -hmm. hollow, which translates very much into this, which is a total other issue, but like making our kids say sorry Versus yeah. allowing them to like get there on their yeah. own. Yeah. Again, it's like we, this. Where do they learn that if we're repairing with them right. with hollow, right? You know, right? Stock phrases because we were told that's what we're supposed to say. Versus going in to your body and saying, "Oof, what just happened? Why did this? How, where am I right now? Can I?" Yeah. Forgive myself for being here, and is it okay? Can I understand that this is okay? This is adaptive. This makes sense. I am safe. My kid is safe, and now I can go in and say really authentically, even if you're using those same words, but they don't—they don't feel hollow because there's they're authentically coming from you, being like, "I had a really hard moment there, and I lost it, and I'm sorry. It's not your fault that I yelled at you, right?" And right. Let's work on you know X Y Z together.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's I love what that. you said too. Like it's not your fault, mm-hmm. right? For kids, because kids take it on as like somehow I've caused this, but, and that's what mm-hmm. kids are supposed to do. Like that's how their right. brains are developing. Yes, their ego right? I caused yeah. the whole thing to happen. Right. I, mean, I make the world spin. Right, and <laughs> so for for parents to really like articulate, me and you are separate humans, and I'm responsible for my world. You're Mm -hmm. not responsible for how I feel. I'm Mm -hmm. responsible for how I feel. I'm responsible for my actions that emerge from how I feel. And I will work so hard to keep working on like not yelling at you. It's probably going to happen again in the future, but I want to promise you that even if it happens again, I'm working really hard for it to not happen again because it matters that much to me.
1: Yes. Yeah. Oh, this is like a perfect little place to, to end I mean I don't want to end but it's like we've we've kind of like walked through why does this happen yeah. what's going on how can we reframe it and then how can we repair it's like kind of the perfect arc for a parent yeah, yeah. to walk, walk away yeah. <laughs> um yeah. oh this was so good thank you so I learned so much talking to you just now I feel like I'm feel very regulated and calm in my body
0: out, ready to go do the rest of the world today. Right. Good.
1: Oh well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of this with everybody um you mentioned that you have this ebook the brilliance of attachment which if 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 you this episode is leaving you as like tingly as it should if you were paying attention like go i'll put it in the show notes so people can get that because i feel like that is that is a very empowering message that like attachment responses even the ones that we think are quote unquote bad are brilliant brilliantly Mm -hmm. adaptive so yeah we should definitely everyone should go get that
0: I would love that. I um, wrote, did this huge series all about attachment and then had a dear friend turn into something that's like this beautiful work of art. I could never do that because I'm not visually talented in any way, shape or form. She just did this beautiful job and there is something pretty fun about like watching your words kind of turn into something so visually beautiful and it's free. It's just a free download because I feel so strongly that we need to stop holding so tightly to this information in the mental yes. health field yes
1: yeah i have like a video of that i have on my website on like just the 101 of attachment that i'm like this needs to be free because i just want everyone to be able <sighs> to really? learn this basic information because yeah we thought we just stop holding it so tightly to our you know to the vest it's this yes. is important that people know this and it's important it's very freeing to know this stuff it does yes. combat a lot of the shame and guilt that happens in parenting.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank this you. has been fun. It's so yes. nice to meet and just
1: know each other now. No. Yes. All right. Well, we'll be in touch. I'm, I'm very confident about that. Definitely. Um, okay. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be on the lookout for my conversation with Robin on her podcast, Parenting After Trauma with Robin Goebel. We dive deep into adult attachment relationships. You see, the first step to creating healthy and secure attachment bonds with your child actually starts with you. You actually need to do the work on yourself first to identify what activates you, what your triggers are, and to start your own healing process. If you want deep and meaningful relationships with others, you need to first find that relationship with yourself. We touch the surface of that here on this episode, but Robin and I get into that in so much more depth on her podcast episode, so you really don't want to miss it. If you have a parenting question or a topic you want me to cover on the show, I really want to hear from you. Go to at securelyattachedpodcast on Instagram and send me a DM or you can go to my website drsarabren.com and click the podcast tab to submit your question. And while you're there, go ahead and subscribe to my newsletter so you never miss a thing. You'll get updates on events, workshops, speaking engagements, and of course, upcoming podcast episodes. So you scroll all the way to the bottom of the website to find the sign up button. Or if you're on Instagram, just click the link in my bio to sign up. Thanks for listening to this episode and until next time, don't be a stranger.